This is Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Primal Screen is about movies, from the ones on the big screen to the ones you stream. Hope you enjoy the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. Hello and welcome to Primal Screen, a show all about screen culture from movies on the big screen to whatever you're streaming. My name is Eloise Ross and I'm in the hosting chair tonight while Flick Ford is off. It's my pleasure to be back here in the studio and I'm joined by my guests, Vaishnavi Wijakumar. Hi, Vai. Hi, how are you? Good, thanks. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. And I'm joined again by Anders Furs. Hey, Anders. Hi, Elo. Thank you very much for having me for the second week in a row. It's so good to be chatting with you. Um, yeah, likewise. On tonight's show, we'll be interviewing Bill Masoulis, co-curator of Unknown Pleasures, a series of regular screenings of independent Australian cinema. We'll be reviewing the new release starring Penelope Cruz, Official Competition, a satire about the film industry that opened in cinemas on July 21st last week. And we'll be gearing up for the Melbourne International Film Festival with a look at the program and a review of Dreaming Walls, a documentary that takes us inside New York's iconic Chelsea Hotel as its refurbishment nears completion. We also have a giveaway coming up for a subscriber screening a little later, so Triple R subscribers, stay tuned. But first, Bill Musoulis is co-curator with Chris Luskri of Unknown Pleasures, a series of regular screenings featuring the best of Australian cinema, both classic and contemporary, accompanied by discussions with the filmmakers. Currently, these screenings are hosted at the Thornbury Picture House. Um, hi, Bill. How are you going? Hi, hi Louise. Pretty well, uh, considering I've got a cold virus. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, thanks for joining us. Um, can you, just to start, tell us a little about Unknown Pleasures, how it came about, and what you intend to achieve with the series that you program each, um, each regular screening? I don't know how regular they are, but a little bit of background. Not, not very in COVID times, <laughs> but... Um, that's a three-part question. That's quite a long one. But it's um, basically um, I spent a bit of time in Europe um, like about 10 years ago up until about 2017 and and I noticed how, um, you know, film screenings of independent film there were, uh, you know, quite, um, you know, easily and enthusiastically put on in certain spaces and and how it wasn't about the money and especially in Greece where there was a crisis and so when I came back to Australia in 2018 I, I did have this burning desire to um, basically hire any kind of space and put on you know films and it's something I've done over the years anyway uh, but I really wanted to push Australian independent cinema especially uh, cinema from kind of my era, um, which is like the 80s, 90s, zeros um, kind of time of independent cinema, um, you know, certain filmmakers and films of that time, um, including things like, I mean, obviously we're in a real kind of uh, feminist and queer time again now, but like uh, a lot of the original Sydney um female uh, feminist filmmakers, you know, we, Chris and I just love them and 
we've had um, a couple of them down to our screenings from Sydney, and and these are these are filmmakers that can tend to be forgotten about, and and other filmmakers from Melbourne, of course, um, from the seventies, eighties, nineties, and and we just want to bring uh, kind of some attention to some of these people, and um, even though they had a bit of attention in the seventies, eighties. Um, I think it's good to to not forget these people historically, and and then we also try to have some more contemporary films, uh, basically, uh, again of more unknown kind of uh, people um, away from the mainstream, away from conventions, um, you know that kind of thing. So. Yeah, so we basically started uh, putting these screenings on in 2018 just at the Long Play venue, if, if got you guys know the Long Play in North Fitzroy, which seats only 30 people. And <clears throat> and we had a great time there in 18 and 19. And, and then in 20, we moved to the Thornbury Picture House and uh, that was a step up for us and started working fabulously for a couple of months and then we had to uh, stop. So um, so here we are now uh, putting on screenings as we can. So we've only had a few this year so far and only a few last year and only a few in 2020 as well instead of monthly. <laughs> um, so, but, yeah, we that's basically uh, what we like to do. And... You also program talks and Q&A sessions with filmmakers whose works you're screening, but uh, do you also invite other people? And why is it key to you to invite the filmmakers along when you're screening their work? <clears throat> oh, it, it's very key because of um, the, the idea and the action of community. And community is something that, you know, it gets spoken about a lot, obviously, and it's always one of those kind of, um, you know, values that people have or that they, like, pretend they have. But, you know, in this kind of, you know, very fast capitalist-type world that we live in, uh, there's a lot of competition and a lot of, you know, everyone just kind of trying to get ahead of each other. And and basically I'm, I'm of an age where I can remember the cooperative uh, film movements of the 80s. I, I can't remember the Melbourne Film Co-op. That was before my time. But um, but basically, I, I know, you know, what that kind of gives a lot of filmmakers and audiences, and you can pull, you know, more audiences in to become filmmakers themselves. So it gets away from the industrialised concept of cinema making and and that you have to go to film school to make films. And I never went to film school and it's so overrated that you know it's um so yeah it's it's very important to have the filmmakers there and have a bit of vibrancy to to it and of course people like MIF and other places do you know filmmaker q and a's it's not that unusual a thing, but to have it in a small space actually you know creates an intimacy, so there's like fifty seven seats at the Thornbury picture house and and it creates um, a, a beautiful kind of little, um, you know, interaction and celebration, you know, with those films and filmmakers. Um, so it's, yeah, just something that's very pleasing overall. And, and, and a lot of the filmmakers, especially the ones who don't have much uh, visibility and profile, who don't make it into myth and, and you know, 
on the, the main streaming uh, kind of platforms and all that. For them, it can be like a really great experience. And uh, and I personally, I just love the idea of honouring certain people before they die. I mean, you know, we've got a couple of people in their 80s now who have made such a great body of work and, and, you know, I think the next screening we're going to have in September or maybe the one after in October will be focused on this particular gentleman. His name's Ivan Gull. He actually appears in the documentary by John Hughes called Senses of Cinema that's playing in MIF about the Melbourne Filmmakers Co-op. Wow. So Ivan is someone that is a little bit known, but we're going to focus a night just on him and honour him before he dies, but sorry, Ivan, I know you're not dying yet, but, um, but, you know, we like to do these kind of things. Yeah. You mentioned, you know, that film school isn't the only way that you can, way that you can learn to make films and the importance of these other kind of, um, introductions into the industry and how important is it? I mean, I feel like I know the answer is very important, but why is it important for contemporary filmmakers to know and have access to all of this history that isn't mainstream? Oh, well, you know, what can you say? It's um, apart from knowing, you know, what, what cinema came before you, uh, it's just a way to get inspired. You know, we are, we're all part of a, a tradition. We're all part of a, a landscape that is way beyond us. And and we ourselves as individual filmmakers are not special. We're just not, you know. Some of us might brand, might brand us that, um, you know, critically and, and whatever. But, you know, basically it's about loving cinema. And, and you know, you should actually be a film viewer yourself and of different forms, different, you know, films from different times because, believe me, the, uh, even within the sphere of, like, independent cinema, there's, you know, such, you know, conventions happening at the moment in the last 20 years that, you know, if you watch a film from 30, 40 years ago at the, the same kind of level, same kind of, you know, purpose behind it, it's completely different. And it's not just to do with themes. It's not a thematic thing. It's a formal and stylistic thing and, and a thing around, you know, daring and experimenting and those kind of things. And otherwise, yeah, you get people just kind of doing the conventional thing just so they can get a pat on the back and, a, and an award at a festival and and that's it and nothing much is achieved. So. Yeah, and that's a lot of the stuff that you can get at Unknown Pleasures and that's certainly what comes up in your, I think, manifesto, if that's what we can call it, on your website, which calls for a change in the way that films are exhibited, in the way that films are talked about, in a, like a local communal kind of model. Uh, it's certainly what you're talking to. Now I'm just going to jump to Anders because mm-hmm. I know he wanted to ask you a question, Bill. Yeah, that, thanks, um, Ello. Uh, Bill, just... Um, you know, we, this show talks a lot about Melbourne film culture. I'd be interested to hear your take on, you know, a bit of a temperature check really on the state of, of Melbourne film culture, how you think it might compare to where it's been, where it could be going. Oh, well, yeah, it's um, it's at a certain point where it's been, you know, dumbed down. I mean, that's a stupid phrase, I know, but... <laughs> It's uh, it, it's the kind of thing where, yeah, just traditions are not valued as much and just what I said before, history goes out the window. Um, but I think just, yeah, Melbourne film 
culture rather than filmmaking culture and the culture around films mm. um is at a kind of poor level at the moment and um i don't know it's there are some some good things as ever and and what pleases me is always the group of uh, younger people coming up and um I don't know, there's there's so many people, because I've been in, like, Europe for 10 years and <clears throat> and now live in Adelaide, I've lost touch with Melbourne film culture a lot. But basically from, you know, the 80s, 90s, up until about 2008, I was very close to it. Um, but I, I understand that there's young filmmakers around and um, people like Dog Milk, you know, like James Hewson's um, boys and... Uh, various other people and it's really quite exciting and some of their work is amazing and I think also critically um, I know that Eloise has been uh, involved with the Cinematheque and you know that the Cinematheque is a great thing that that keeps happening even of course if it regurgitates certain kind of strands over and over but that's for younger people to you know see those kind of films as well so yeah I think Melbourne Film Culture can be in a better place but uh, like with anything in life, you know, fighting fascism or whatever, there's hope. Mm. Yeah, cool. Um, Bill, I had a question for you. Um, say if there's a young um, cinephile who's looking to, um, you know, build their understanding of um, local screen culture here in Australia, what would be a filmmaker that you would say is like a must-see to start developing their taste? A contemporary filmmaker or yeah. a historical one? Either. Hmm. <clears throat> well, I think someone like, you know, John Hughes is very important. Uh, being a documentary filmmaker, of course, he has a, a film in Myth um, about the filmmaker co-ops. And uh, he's someone that, you know, we can learn from in terms of if you want to be a documentary filmmaker who, you know, and be also a researcher and a historian um, because he's very meticulous and and then and then his style and his form are, are really unusual. Um, but apart from that, there's there's all kinds of people and, and maybe we should talk about the filmmakers we're highlighting tomorrow night because uh Misha Baca and Siobhan Jackson uh, are really interesting filmmakers and and I think I think Siobhan, uh, who is a lecturer at VCA that does have a lot of great influence on younger filmmakers there, the students and and others, because they see through her work and also her uh, expressions, her, uh, you know, theorising and her attitude, uh, you know, with everything. They can see that there's a, a different way you can approach things, that narrative cinema is not about dialogue, you know, that, that you know, maybe you should... Um, you know, look at that, um, the human body a bit more. Don't just get an actor to act out certain things. You know, just get the actor to really be in um, that space of that character. And so I think Siobhan's a, a great example. And and I think she does have a bit of influence there, which is great. Um, and the other filmmaker tomorrow night, uh, Misha Baca, who uh, was actually a student of Siobhan's, and then they've ended up making films together. So it's it's a great little story about different kind of ages working together and different sensibilities. Um, yeah. 
Great. So Misha Backer and Siobhan Jackson's films are screening tomorrow night at the Thornbury Picture House as part of Unknown Pleasures screening series. Um, if you've just tuned in, we've been chatting to Bill Masoulis about the Australian Independent Cinema Screening Series, Unknown Pleasures. For more info and some great reading material as well, you can head to the website, lovingly named after an Australian independent classic, I assume, Bill? Um, Absolutely. PureShitOzCinema.com. Thank you so much for joining us. And the double meaning of that title is (laughs) is fully intended. Some people said to me when, when I put that website out, oh, you've combined the words pure shit with Australian cinema. And I said, yes, I have. (laughs) In a way. (laughs) Great. Well, thanks so much for making the time to come in and chat um, and do check out Unknown Pleasures online if you've been listening in. Thanks, Eloise. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. That was Eric Satie's Nyosian number one. I probably butchered that pronunciation. I apologise. Which can be heard in the new release official competition, although a different recording is heard in the film. Official competition is a comedy drama from directors Mariano Cohn and Gaston Duprat. This Spanish-Argentinian production features a renowned filmmaker played by Penelope Cruz, who gets up to antics while directing two big stars with... Two Big Egos, played by Antonio Banderas and Oscar Martinez. In a film about two uh, who are auditioning for or rehearsing for a film about two competitive brothers with the dramatic title of Rivalry, this film is quite self-referential, I guess you could say. Of course, all the artists and their egos butt up against each other in different ways in this very meta and self-reflexive satire of the film industry that it confused even me when I was trying to read the plot description. Vishnavi, what did you think about official competition? Um, I was actually quite looking forward to seeing it. Um, I'm st- I've been studying Spanish for about three years, so was keen to um, see um, a film particularly starring Antonio Banderas and Penelope Cruz, given, you know, they, they are quite renowned for their Hollywood films. So I was very interested to see how it would play out and what kind of um, nuances there might be in their portrayal um, by speaking in their native tongues. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I did enjoy it and there were some really um, funny and hilarious moments throughout. Um, I loved the visual langu- language, particularly the decor and the architecture, the costuming and fashion and the way that was all framed within the set design. Um, and it was kind of interesting to watch the gender dynamic as well um, between um, Penelope Cruz as the female director and then two very prominent men as the stars uh, of the film and the way she was able to assert that um, control and authority in directing scenes when they were quite, you know, visibly very wayward and had, you know, their own opinions of how things should be done. Um, I did feel like it did go for a little bit longer and it was a bit slower than what I was hoping. I thought they'd be hoping for more complexity and sometimes that kind of switch between the rivalry between the two male actors and then, um, you know, their tensions with the director did get a bit tiring after some time as it repeated throughout the film. But um, there were enough moments there um, that really um, made me laugh, really. (laughs) And I I really feel like um, 
It was great to see Antonio Banderas' portrayal as a playboy. I think he really took to that role and, and went with it, um, and it really comes across on screen. Yeah, I wonder if some of that pacing is about... Um, is kind of textual. Like, Penelope Cruz is trying to push these two actors to their limits, and... It kind of starts in these really doing these activities with them that are really, really grating and really get on their nerves. And then maybe in going on and on and on, that comes across to us as an audience as well. Um, but some of those individual scenes or sequences, moments are really, really funny and work really well. Anders? It's the, the pacing is an interesting one, isn't it? I, um, I found this to be quite a sort of strange film in a way and um interesting that you mentioned the visual language and the decor and the set design because i think that's actually a big part of what gives it this sort of odd almost alienating kind of effect because we have this um these rehearsals playing out and these moments of sort of pure absurdity that are yeah i found myself laughing out loud um and but they're depicted in this very austere uh, very rich-looking sort of concrete and glass building um, where really all you've got is the three main actors, the two actors and the director, and, like, a couple of PAs, and that's sort of it. And they're engulfed in this huge sort of hermetically spilled, sealed um, space. And I thought that was kind of curious and... Almost, I don't know if that was working against the parody or something that was maybe um, uh, running alongside it, but this sort of idea of alienation became very strong to me, almost to the sense of, you know, repelling me from interest in the film because it, there were moments where I felt a bit bored and I was like, well, is this happening deliberately or is this just because of the setting or, I, yeah, it was an interesting juxtaposition that I wasn't quite expecting. Yeah, it felt a little, I mean, overall there were moments that were a little bit dull. I, however, I do think that this will be a crowd pleaser. I know I loved the, because everyone in this movie is rich um, <laughs> and so they can afford great houses and fabulous clothing and like mm. a, Ferrari or whatever it is that Antonio Banderas is driving. Um, and I love the stylishness of the, I don't know whether it's minimalism or maximalism. Like there was just a lot going on at the start and then it became a little distancing for me as an audience member. Um, and maybe that was intended somehow. I don't know. Maybe it's kind of like that whole, um, you know, you're getting this kind of behind-the-scenes look at how a film is made and often as an audience member you don't always get that unless you, you know, watch the behind-the-scenes footage or whatever it might be and maybe it was mm. deliberately creating that distance because that is the distance you experience from how the actual work is made potentially. Mm. Mm, I, I did actually watch some B-reel on a Blu-ray of that I own of a different film, and it was really boring. <laughs> so maybe that's just it's what the, the process. process. It's yeah. the process. I mean, I I really appreciate this film because, um, on the in the sense that you know, uh, Hollywood parodying Hollywood has been done to absolute death, and this is sort of fertile territory, whether it's parody, whether it's. Um, Oh, like, for example, like, you know, Robert Altman's a player, or you can go sort of the psychosexual thrillery, you know, David Lynch, Mulholland Drive kind of thing. What I really appreciate about this film is that we're parodying the European art house circuit, which is sort of just as 
um, fertile uh, territory in terms of like the egos are out of control, these sort of pretensions to creating something higher, something with meaning, something with as the rich millionaire at the start of the film who's backing this whole thing, financially backing, says he wants to fund uh, something that will be his legacy. Um, and I, I did uh, appreciate how, yeah, we don't often see that sort of serious, you know, quote-unquote quote unquote serious um, type of filmmaking be uh, sort of lampooned from within the circuit. You know, Cruz and Banderas are very much, um, I, I think, uh, interesting in that they've had these successful Hollywood careers, but they also anchor a lot of these films that you'll get playing the sort of palace cinema matinee crowd or, you know, playing at MIF in a few weeks, in fact. Um, so I enjoyed that. Yeah, it was really interesting, the decision to not show any actual filming or mm. any production process, basically. So we cut from the guy who's financing the film um, talking to Penelope Cruz, saying, write this screenplay for me. And she then we cut to her having written the script and we get this fantastic kind of working version with cigarette butts taped to it and bits of her hair, maybe. I don't know, I could be making this up, <laughs> fantasising about Penelope Cruz's hair in this movie. But anyway, we'll get to that later. But then you cut from, you know, there's this very long, drawn-out rehearsal process and then the film is made and there's a press conference and we don't actually see the film. And so I think it's taking a direction that maybe isn't so often taken in terms of what is being satirised and that maybe in saying, you know, the end product doesn't matter, that's kind of where some of this satire is coming from in terms of European art cinema or what have you. I think there is a lesson in the film about, like, you know, this is art for art's sake. There's no, you know, necessarily need to be a deeper meaning that audiences often place or project onto a particular work. And I think what I also mm. loved was the dynamic between um, Antonio Banderas and Oscar Martinez and that kind of um, rivalry, I guess, between the, the traditional and kind of method actor and the newer, um, you know, well-established actor who may have more mainstream success and that, yeah, the tension that they shared of, of like, you know, no, my process is this, but no, actually my process is this. And I think I kind of enjoyed that because that does play out um, in the art world more broadly as well. Mm. What did we think about Penelope Cruz's hair? <laughs> it was beautiful. Incredible. I loved it. I, I just like, I just thought like, you know, usually when we see her, she's got like this sleek or like slightly wavy, like brunette um, kind of hair. And to hear, <clears> see, <throat> you know, see her something with so kind of outlandish, it kind of fit. The, the, the tone of the film of, like, you know, lampooning, as you said, and is, um, yeah, the, what the filmmaking process is. Yeah, and it was bigger than um, Nat Natasha Leone's hair in Russian Doll, which was kind of fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> there were moments where it felt like it was taking up the whole frame. Um, it, it, she, she's a, and she's such an interesting actor, isn't she? Because I she makes such interesting choices. She's got such a sort of fascinating career. I... And she's just so, I don't know, she's just so watchable. Like, this is quite a different kind of a role for her from my experience of having watched her films. And I oh, I could just watch her, like, all day. Like, she's very, very charismatic. She's a really over-the-top character and that's something that she uses to... or she uses in the construction of the character. She gives... Mm. 
I think she makes it really well drawn. I mean, it's probably in the screenplay as well, but you can see that even though she's kind of playing a caricature, she is real. I could see all of her decisions, like the things she was going through, the way she used her face, her what uh, Antonio Banderas calls his face his working tool. You know, the way Penelope <laughs> Cruz uses hers is really well developed and. I mean, in something like the, my last reference point for Penelope Cruz is Parallel Mothers, which yeah. is fantastic. And I can't, it could just be recency bias, but I feel like there aren't as many close-ups of Penelope Cruz in that, even though she's playing this, like, very emotional character and you get a lot more depth from her just in the screenplay and in the way the film works. In official competition, I feel like you still get that from her. And I really loved seeing that. And that, the, I mean, that you know, all of the close-ups on her face, you can kind of see that things are ticking through. Yeah, her facial expressions were fantastic in the way that she shifted her tone. And, um, you know, the, I mean, she has a very beautiful face. So, like, I, I think they definitely yeah. used that as a, as a um, visual tool throughout the film. Even though it's very strange, remember those interludes where she's doing sort of TikTok-esque <laughs> dances? Oh, my God, yes. <laughs> I mean, I loved those. They were, she's so confident in her persona that these little mm. moments, glimpses of her personal life as the director at home alone were really valuable in painting they her character, cool. right? Yeah. Because we get a sense that she, you know, she's not confident in every, in every scenario. And I loved the moment at the end of the film where, uh, and this is again kind of leaning into the satire of the film industry and things, where someone at the press conference asked her this really elaborate question. You know, it was kind of a, a hypothetical, but she just says no um, and shuts him up and moves on. And I thought that was really great. And then the, the film kind of uses that press conference, I guess, as a way to wrap up what it, what it's saying about the film industry, you know. I think there's this quote, a film isn't an, uh, an affirmation to answer a question, you know. Don't always read into everything. Sometimes these films are just films, again, kind of lampooning the European art film um, kind of mode where everyone has to read into everything. And, and I guess also as well, I felt like a statement the film was making was around accolades. Like, you know, it's about like letting go of your ego and just focusing on making really great art. Um, and I think that was an interesting le- lesson as well. Yeah, and also just make really pretty art. I mean, which is kind of what this film is. It is the well. height of privilege. <laughs> <laughs> So Official Competition was released in cinemas last week and is hopefully screening somewhere near you. Do check it out. So screening at the Melbourne International Film Festival this August, Dreaming Walls is a documentary that takes viewers inside the iconic Chelsea Hotel in Manhattan as it nears the completion of a decade-long transformation into a boutique space. The Chelsea Hotel, once a dynamic hub of American and international artists who flock to stay in the hotel's rooms or live in its unique apartments, has been taken over by developers who seem ignorant of the value of keeping history alive. The doco by Belgian filmmakers Amelie van Elmt and Maya Duvedia builds a portrait of the Chelsea Hotel that is in limbo with refurbishment dragging on and leaving some long-time tenants living amongst gutted rooms and construction equipment. It's a common story in New York and everywhere capitalism erases culture. But Anders, does this doco have a special 
New York take? Uh, I think it really does. Um, I really liked it, actually. Um, it's, it's yeah, as you say, it's sort of not, you know, it's not the most uh, untold story, I guess, is this story of the gentrification of New York City, but the way it's sort of told through the prism of the very famous Chelsea Hotel, which really is associated with a particular time in New York City, you know, that sort of bohemian um, art scene of, what, the 70s, 80s, even, you know, up to the 90s, really. Um, the way the film uses that as sort of a vessel to tell that story, I think, is, um, you know, it, it makes sense. And I just really love the way this film was made. You know, there's no talking heads. It's really the residents themselves. There's long-term tenants who have been there for a long time and now find themselves dislocated um, you know, quite literally by this motel, this motel refurbishment that's tearing through some of their apartments and trying to force them all onto to level one, giving them, you know, they have their own, uh, they have this new sort of own slightly shunted off secret entrance that the residents are supposed to go into that's not the motel lobby, you know, all of that. Um, I really, you know, enjoyed how, you know, it gave them you know, their dignity in the way that they're, you know, everything that they talked about was from sort of their point of view. We see them moving around their daily lives, the sort of impact of this um, complete uh, refurbishment. Refurbishment is too soft to work, like it's sort of gutting of the interior of the building. Um, the impact that has on their daily lives, we see um, lots of discussion, you know, mixed in with... Um, interesting uh, stuff like the projection of sort of famous faces associated with the hotel onto the building and lots of really great archival footage. Um, I thought the film made use of all of these tools and techniques to really strong effect, yeah. I really liked that projection of, um, you know, some of the people that lived there or made art about it on those brick kind of structures mm -hmm. on the roof at the start. That was really kind of made it like... I mean, literalise that whole Dreaming Walls element that the film's title is trying to call on. Yeah, I um, when I was watching it, it actually reminded me a lot of a documentary by um, Genevieve Bailey called Judging the Gatwick, which was about, the I think, the demolition of the Gatwick Hotel in St Kilda mm. and the um, communities that were impacted by that. And I think what I really loved about this film is how people are so integral to creating the culture of a place. Um, and even some aspects of it, in, in particular the focus on New York, did also remind me a little bit of Eddie Martin's documentary on the film Kids, which is also screening as part of Myth this year, and like how the combination of archival footage of a, a place at a certain point in time is then brought back to the contemporary situation and the impact on the current residents as well. Um, I really enjoyed it, um, and I love the fact that this place has such a history with artists who are both incredibly well-known but also those that are lesser-known as well. Mm. I'm going to bring in a reference now too. <laughs> I feel like we all have, but this reminded me in its structure and sort of in its focus of Rowan Spong's documentary Winter at Westbeth. Um, shout out, I guess, to my summer stock co-host, <laughs> Rowan Spong. Um, but Winter at Westbeth is a film that considers the history of the Westbeth artist housing complex in the West Village and focuses on a couple of the residents in the building who have contributed to its history. It's not about you know, the kind of um, the complex falling apart or being restructured or anything, but 
it paints this really kind of vivid portrait of a history and also a contemporary space and like how important history is to a building um, and to a sense of community and to people's lives. I didn't really get that sense with this film, Dreaming Walls, that it was clear enough in the history that made this building what it was and what was going missing apart from, you know, the people who were kind of featured uh, erratically mm. throughout the film. Um, it made a, I don't know, it kind of seemed as though it was just name-dropping people who'd been there. You know, I think there was one sequence where um, there was three clips really in close, really close kind of proximity in the film um, without actually dwelling on who these artists were or what their histories were, what their contributions were to the building. Um, you know, we have Patti Smith kind of at the film to the beginning and in some ways Patti Smith is maybe the building's most famous kind of uh, representative, um, saying how much she loves it. Um, and then it kind of just moves on. Like I, it, it felt in a way really detached from the building while at the same time trying to say, you know, this is a really important kind of part of New York's history. It's interesting because I um, wasn't really familiar with the Chelsea Hotel, to be honest, and I felt like watching this film and seeing how many prominent um, artists had um, connected with the place actually kind of forced me to um, look back and um, look at the history of the place, um, you know, how they've kind of somehow um, maintained the bohemian culture of that, you know, area despite, the you know, fighting the face of gentrification. And I think, you know, that is something that happens um, with a lot of communities. Like you even see it here in Melbourne's western suburbs where a lot of communities are holding space and holding on to the culture that they've made there um, in the face of, yeah, being gentrified. It's, um, yeah, I, the, it, it really, I mean, it almost, um, I think the most emotionally resonant moment for me came when uh, this one of these residents, um, and she gets around on a walker, and she was by far my favourite. I think she's the film's favourite uh, resident, so there's a lot of times with her. But she goes to her neighbours for dinner, and she's sort of uh, at the uh, at dinner, and she's talking about sort of the, you know, devastation that this new motel is having on these stories, you know, the building, all the things we've been talking about. And the other woman who um, is hosting her says, uh, oh, no, 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 like, that's just all Alice in Wonderland. Like, that's just nonsense. Like, you're, you're emotionally investing far too much into this. So I thought it was really interesting that moment of ambivalence um, was really in the context of this film quite sort of heartbreaking, I guess. But I thought it was very important because it sort of punctured that, you know, the 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 non-critical, I guess, discourse of the film, because the film's a very loving portrait of um, this particular time, this particular, you know, thesis that it's positing. And um, I thought it was, it was useful that we had this moment of saying, oh, no, well, actually, this is a very real thing that's happening. And, you know, they're fighting the good fight, but at the end of the day, they're, they've lost. Yeah, yeah, and get, kind of giving that sense of loss and evoking nostalgia for something is essentially what this film is trying to do. It's saying yes, that nostalgia, you know, we can't yeah. really keep things alive. Um, and for me, I mean, I didn't really get a lot of keeping it alive in this film, but I think in creating a, an artefact like this and kind of encouraging um you know, more kind of investigation of what's going on or, for me, 
this film made me go and get a book off my shelf that I've had for years and never opened called Inside the Dream Palace, The Life and Times of New York's Legendary Chelsea Hotel. Hmm. Um, it made me go and get it off the shelf and, you know, now I'm going to read it. So, hmm. you know, in kind yeah. of having that impact, I think that's why these films and these documentaries and these loving portraits are really important to us, to our culture. Um, yes. And I did also like some of the focus on particular artists, um, in particular Sky, Man of Wire, Ferente, the the man who made like the wire artworks. Because I just thought that was such an interesting art form that you don't always see. But when I was looking at the patterns that um, of and profiles of people that he made using those wires, it actually reminds me of a lot of um, prints that you see on like textiles and fashion now. That kind of wired profile of a person's yeah. face that's often tessellated, and, and and you see it in prints. And I was like, that's so interesting, and it made me wonder if those prints stem from that particular art form yeah it's kind of thinking about what Bill Masoulis was saying earlier you know in the non-mainstream creatives or artists um, and this might just be our particular perspective but you know a lot of these artists maybe don't have a particular kind of distribution platform or like sense of exposure and so but having that kind of outlet for seeing their work is really important. Yeah, definitely. I think that's probably one of the things that I, I took from the film is like, you know, artists being able to live um, and work um, in these spaces um, and, you know, something like the Chelsea Hotel, it can just foster such a culture of creativity um, through residential living. Yeah, there was another documentary about Milos Forman. I can't remember what what it was exactly or where I saw it, but there's there I was reminded of some footage in that documentary because he actually, when he came from Czechoslovakia to America, stayed in the Chelsea Hotel or lived there, I can't remember, but there's like some 8mm footage of him staying in the room and kind of looking out the window and I was just like having places to see that footage and um, keep it alive is, is really great. Mm. And there were, there were also some really um, lovely new shots in the film, particularly the one striking image that I have taken from the film, which really sums the whole thing up, was this sort of stationary shot of two residents in their apartment and you see the external... And they've, they've got, like, a window uh, out onto the street and you see the sort of external scaffolding of the construction and you just see the uh, construction builders taking the lifts just down <laughs> right behind them, uh, right behind the window, and I, that just summed up the whole film in a, like, hilariously perfect shot. So shout out to that shot. That was a great apartment and they were great tenants. They had some good personality and gave a lot of context, I think, about the impact of what's happening to the Chelsea and the community and everything. That was a really good, you know, section of the film. I also loved the final shot at the very end of the credits of Jonas Mikas crossing the street. And I thought, what a wonderful kind of evocation of this particular time and place in New York that um, is maybe getting slowly or not so slowly lost um, well, the film screens at the Melbourne International Film Festival, which opens on August 4th. And Dreaming Walls has sessions in the Melbourne CBD and also in Castlemaine as part of the festival's expansion into regional Victoria. Check out mif.com.au for the program and screening information. Before that announcement, you heard Lennon Cohen's Chelsea Hotel Number no. 2, which we played thanks to the new documentary about the hotel, Dreaming Walls, screening at MIFF this year. That is one of my favourite Leonard Cohen songs. But there is another song being profiled in another film at the moment called Hallelujah, Leonard Cohen, A Journey, A Song. 
which is also currently in cinemas. Have either of you seen that one? No, I haven't seen it, but I have to say my entry into Leonard Cohen's catalogue of, of one song that I know, which is Hallelujah, was actually through Jeff Buckley. Um, and, yeah, I mean, I, I love that you played this song because now I guess I have another song to add to my catalogue of Leonard Cohen knowledge. Yeah, it's not unusual, I think. And isn't it, I mean, was it through the OC? It was through. I didn't want to say it. I felt like this is a highbrow program, but I didn't want to bring up a lowbrow show. We're of the age that we can recognise. We heard Jeff Buckley's Hallelujah, uh, oh, season no. one finale, I believe, of the OC. You are correct. <laughs> <laughs> um, look, speaking of Leonard Cohen, he, I mean, he pairs so well with movies. Um, he, yeah, there's, there's been lots of examples of great um, Leonard Cohen films, but no, I haven't, uh, moments in film, but no, I haven't seen that documentary, Ello. I'm definitely going to check it out. Great. Well, tonight you have been listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. Um, we have chatted with Bill Masoulis about unknown pleasures. We reviewed the new release starring Penelope Cruz's official competition, a satire about the film industry that opened last week. And we look forward to MIF opening next week with a review of Dreaming Walls. You can listen back online at rr.org.au or subscribe to the Primal Screen podcast and check out the program page for details of all the things we've chatted about tonight. A big thank you to Bill Masoulis for joining us and thanks heaps and heaps to my guest reviewers Anders and Vaishnavi for coming into the studio for our review segments tonight. Thanks for listening to Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. 